Thank you, Dr. Ehler. Um, well, um, first of all, good evening to everyone. Um, as Dr. Ehler just mentioned, I'm Alberto Contreras. I'm a PGY4 fellow here at US, an infectious disease fellow here at USF. And um, so today we're going to be talking about the C. diff and basically just kind of the history, the management, and um, any updates that I was able to find on that, um, as well as kind of um, uh, just what the future of this um, interesting um, bacteria um, seems to hold. So I guess just to kind of, um, for formality, I have nothing um, to disclose. And um, so on that note, I'm just gonna start out with a quick warm up um, for everyone. Just, uh, um, you see this picture um, and what are you thinking right now? Um, can we just list some differentials right now? Um, if we need a little um, case scenario, I can also provide that. Um, does anyone have any input here? You do. Okay. Obviously, the, that's the, the presentation. But just, just so we know, um, um, what if I were to tell you this is a... Um, I don't know, a 10-year-old um, with diarrhea, um, nuanced diarrhea, abdominal pain. Um, and so he had a screening uh, colonoscopy. Would you think of other differentials? Previously healthy? E. coli? Yeah, E. coli, even IBD can be in the differential. It just um, a staph is another thing. Um, so basically, I just wanted to uh, bring this up just because this is um, pseudomembranous colitis that we're looking at. Um, on the left is um, kind of smaller um, plaques. And then in, on the right, it's a kind of a more extensive uh, picture of it. I got these from up to date. Um, and so um, just there, it can be, I guess the, the severity can be varied as well. But it's, um, I guess it has come to a point that C. diff is always the one that's to, um, I guess that's most commonly associated, but just to kind of keep in mind that there are other things that can cause it. And so why did I bring up this picture of pseudomembranous colitis? Um, so just to kind of uh, talk about the, this etiology, this uh, presentation of disease, um, before C. diff was actually known, this is how um, it was described initially as um, pseudomembranous colitis back in 1893 um, by Finney and his group. Actually, and uh, Finney, um, Dr. Finney first noticed it in a post-op patient um, that um, Sir William Osler operated on. So kind of an interesting story there. And um, even though pseudome pseudomembranous colitis was kind of diagnosed many years ago, um, the bacteria, C. diff itself was not identified until 1935 by um, Hall and O'Toole. Um, they named it difficile just because it's so difficult to isolate and identify. Um, their research also showed that um, C. diff produced this toxin that they, um, th they did research in mice showing that the C. diff toxin was about um, 10 to 100 times less toxin, less toxic than the uh, but botulin, botulinum toxin. Um, so 
we have known about the disease, uh, the bacteria for a long time. Um, and just um, later on, um, Hamber and his colleagues, um, they, they just kind of continue to research this new bug. Um, they, they, um, their research was focused on more so on looking at the use of penicillin for gas gangrene. And so as you can um, tell by the, the year they were doing this research, so this was around World War II, um, where they were probably were seeing lots of amputations from um, wounds from the war. So they were trying to um, see how they could help out people. And so what they noticed is that people who got uh, penicillin and then developed this pseudomembranous colitis, um, th th this uh, tifilitis from uh, penicillin, th they saw even higher death rates than gas gangrene uh, from Clostridium perfringis. Um, and then uh, in 1974, Tedesco and his co-workers um, notice a, a link with clindamycin, uh, pseudo, with pseudomembranous colitis and clindamycin. Um, and so for a little while, it was actually renamed as clindamycin-associated colitis, just because in their study um, of 200 patients, they found that 21% um, of them um, developed diarrhea afterwards, and then half of those had the pseudomembranous colitis. So um, Tedesco was kind of a very important pioneer, I guess, because his research is kind of what got things started going in the early in, in the late 70s, early 80s. It was kind of what um, set the ball rolling for the C. diff era. Um, and so at, around this time, it was also kind of what um, it's, it seemed that the association between pseudomembranous colitis and um, C. diff came about um it seemed prior to this there wasn't much of an association even though we knew about the two things uh, from before so um just to show you guys this this is kind of um, a little timeline of pubmed just of the literature results and you can kind of tell like here um where you start seeing it go up that's um like mid 1970s and then in the 2000s, it just goes up even more. Um, so I don't, here, let me see if. Um, I don't know if you're able to see my my pointer, um, but this is about the 1970s here. And then in the 2000s over here, this is when it goes up a lot quicker. So just as we all are aware, C. diff is a gram-positive rod. Um, but what makes it more interesting is just its ability um, to make spores, to form spores. And we see here this beautiful electron microscopy of the C. diff spores. Um, and this is what makes it so, these spores are what makes it, make it so difficult to eradicate. They are able to resist heat, acid, and antibiotics. So, um, so even though it's very pleasing um, to the eye, like as we can see there, um, we do know that it can cause a lot of damage by using its, by the production of its two exotoxins. Um, and um, it produces this, um, 
inflammatory, the toxins itself produce this inflammatory response in the colon. That is what actually leads to the formation of the pseudomembranous colitis, just the, the fibrin deposition and the sloughing up off of the epithelial cells in the colon. Um, and so it, it creates this fibrinous exudate that is what um, creates the, the appearance of the pseudomembranous colitis. And so, um, and, and what is even more kind of important is that people who get this infection, um, 35% of them will have a recurrence infection, um, depending on the source you read. And so, um, and just seeded spores are just found everywhere. They are, they we commonly associate it with a healthcare uh, associated infection. However, uh, yes, it is the the uh, bacteria is more predominant in a healthcare setting, but it is indeed ubiquitous in nature. Um, so it can be found in soil, um, and um, and actually there has been um, study into kind of the potential reservoirs of C. diff um, by looking at like genomic sequencing. And so what they've have found is that. Um, there has been like a bi-directional transmission between uh, farm animals and humans. Uh, so that's something interesting. And um, and there has actually another um, source mentioned that there was um, a strain that was found in the respiratory tracts of dogs. So kind of interesting. So C. diff, um, has um, has a very um, complex role or um, existence, I guess, in in our body. Uh, um, up to three percent. When we're little, um, in in infants, it is frequently found in the um, in the colonic in stools in colonic mucosa, and so. Um, almost up to like half of the, uh, the infants will have it. Um, but as we kind of age, the theory is that we develop um, colonization resistance and maybe the IgA becomes more developed that we're able to kind of um, fight off or uh, C. diff will disappear. Um, but then as we become adults, 3%, it was seen that 3% of them, uh, of us, are colonized with C. diff. And I just put this picture here to show that there are um, a lot of different interactions with C. diff and our own microbiota um, that um, are that function to keep help keep it at bay if we are colonized. Um, there's competition for nutrients, um, bile acids itself are um, both stimulants of germination and um, hinders of um, germination. So it just depends if it's a primary bile acid or if it's a secondary bile acid, they have different effect on it. Um, and um, and so just to, to put it at. Um. So kind of as I'm as I'm as the earlier picture that I showed showing how there's been more research, more interest in C. diff at the same time, uh, I guess, concurrently, 
we've seen um, an increase in, in, um, ho in hospital-acquired diarrhea. Um, there were close to five, five uh, half a million cases back in 2011, and the expense associated with C. diff all, uh, increases morbidity, increased hospital stay. Um, so it, it um, monetary-wise, it's a significant financial burden. Um, and just I found this picture here interesting just to kind of show as incidence has also increased, so has the use of vincomycin um, increased. So um, just and basically it all began um, in the 19 early 1980s. That's when we saw we see the use of um, vincomycin kind of go up as well. So I found that very interesting. So. There are many risk factors for C. diff, and as we all know, um, antibiotics are probably the most important of these risk factors. Um, and interestingly, in vitro, many of these antibiotics have some activity against C. diff. Um, so, like, for example, flagyl, metronidazole, um, has been seen to both cause and, and treat the disease. Um, and um, and then just I put here just to kind of show us um, what antibiotics are more commonly associated with C. diff and which ones are less associated with it. Um, and so um, just prolonged hospitalization is a, a big risk factor. Um, that's where, well, I, I read somewhere saying that um, people that are ho hospitalized for four weeks they have a almost a 50% chance of um, a risk of getting C. diff. Um, there was actually even one um, abstract I read saying that having the sharps containers in hospital in the patient rooms increases the risk of C. diff. That there's some association to that, but um, honestly, there's um, just just because the the spores are there, it, there's a lot of factors that that um, abstract did not take into consideration, but it, it was something interesting to point out. IBD is definitely a risk factor and kind of um, the extent of involvement of the colonic mucosa. So a severe UC, is you have a higher risk of C. diff versus just a, a Crohn's disease that can um, skip parts. Um, and, and um, History, people with cancer are often just maybe because they have such pr uh, prolonged hospital stays, they're on frequent antibiotics. They also have about a two, time, a two times higher risk than other people, other hospitalized patients of developing C. diff. Um, PPI use, there's mixed data for PPIs, um, but the, the theory behind it is that just changing the, the acid um, in the... Um, and then intestinal and the intestines alters the microbiota, which then um, can affect lead to um, C. diff a, be able to kind of um, ha, ha, it, just altering the pH can cause um, decreased re colonization resistance, which lets lets the C. diff grow. Um, so. And um, also, H2 blockers also had uh, play a role kind of with, with 
um, as, as PPIs, but less so, um, just for that same reason. Um, and just to kind of touch a little bit on the treatment of C. diff, um, the main thing IDSA, uh, these are from the IDSA guidelines that were published um, in 2018. Um, the main thing that they recommended, obviously, if possible, discontinue the inciting medication. Make sure you go through your list of medications whether um, and try to limit them as much as possible. They also placed a lot of emphasis on um, infection prevention, and it's stuff we already do, isolate the patients, um, wear gowns and gloves, wash your hands, um, and um, if their patient's going to be transferred somewhere, make sure you test them and let the facility know. Um, and they did recommend that if you're going to um, think of um, discontinuing isolation for some reason, that the patient should have should be um, have at least two days um, without diarrhea. But they only if need they really did not want they wanted to just continued isolation um, and just here um, to point out metronidazole is still there listed for treatment of the initial episode just it, it's mainly if the other ones are unavailable um, and so um, and they only list it for mild infections um, and then um for severe episodes, just vincomycin, fenoxamycin, and then um, for more complicated C. diff, where you have your ileus, your me uh, toxic megacolon, or they're in shock, then you can do um, vincomycin with flagell, um, just um, there. Um, and just go uh, going back to the infection prevention, one thing um, one more thing that was interesting was that it encouraged, it said that it was a good practice guideline to encourage uh, patients to wash their hands and shower. And so what, what they meant by good practice guideline is that um, the, um, it, the level of evidence was not there to kind of provide a graded recommendation, whether it was a strong, um, a low e level of evidence, but um, just doing this showering uh, would do more good than harm. So just something that was interesting there. And then for your, um, for your first recurrence, then um, the treatment kind of varies on your um, which recurrence it is. But once you have a recurrence, the risk of having repeat recurrences increases with each recurrence. Um, so um, the one thing is, like, let's just say someone has um, history of C. diff and they have um, they need prolonged antibiotics, maybe for recurrent UTIs or recurrent bacteremias or something. Um, they did mention that there is insufficient data to continue treatment for people um, who are expected to be uh, on prolonged antibiotics. Um, and just to notice here on the guidelines, um, FMT is on the, the guidelines, um, but they don't, they don't put it until the um, second recurrence. And so basically what you do is, um, like let's just say, um, if if you use vancomycin for your first for the first episode you can then do a vancomycin tapered um, dose or you can do phenoxamycin for 10 days 
um, and then, but what if metronidazole was used first in the uh, for the first episode of C diff? You can use um, ideally 10 days of vancomycin, or you can try the other options as well. And so, just to kind of point that out there. So, basically, what happened to metronidazole? It's um, Initially, it was something that was kind of used. I remember probably in the first year of residency, I was still using metronidazole uh, more for, for treatment of C. diff, and then it just kind of fell out of favor. So what ended up happening is that there were some initial studies um, in the 80s and the 90s that found um, kind of no significant difference between vancomycin um, and IV flagell. Um, Teasley did, had this, the bottom study here, had this pers prospective randomized trial. And so um, that was kind of the, the first study to, um, to look at this. It was done in 1983. And so he looked at 101 cases that, and, and found no difference in each arm of his study. Um, when when it, um, he only had there was this one was done in 1996 and he only had 31 patients in each arm and so basically um, and in both the vancomycin and the IV flagell he found a cure rate of 20 29 out of the 31 patients that were in each arm uh, later on this is the reason why metronidazole got discontinued so um, th there were some randomized um, double-blinded studies um, that showed that vancomycin was um, superior. Um, so um, the first one um, by by um, by Zar, this this looked at 173 patients. Um, and it, the main thing to notice here is that it didn't consider vancomycin much better for mild infection compared to metronidazole. The, the difference is not that much, but in severe infection, there was significantly better. Um, so that was kind of the first strike for, for metronidazole. Then later on um, came in um, Johnson that showed um, that overall the clinical success with um, vincomycin which was the dark gray um, and um, was significantly better in, in this study cut off the colors um, so then we come to the question is okay so now we know metronidazole has been scratched out after all the uh, after those two initial studies there were more but those were kind of the two things that made that um, the um, gastroenterology, the IDSA, all remove uh, metronidazole from their guidelines. Then we have, we look at vincomycin with fidoxamycin, with something kind of we always ask ourselves, which one do we pick um, if both are recommended? So um, Louis et al. Um, look, looked at this um, fairly large trial with a total of 629 participants. And so he found that um, the initial cure uh, results were similar between the two medications. Um, but as far as global cure, meaning at 12 weeks or, um, or longer, the, 
the result with fedoxamycin was a little bit better. So, so and they still rec uh, IDSA even though in light of this still recommends vincomycin, but just something to keep in mind long term. Um, or even with recurrences, fedoxamycin has shown a little better results. Um, then also we have bezlotoximab for prevention of recurrent C diff. And the, this was just two trials, both the Modify 1 and the Modify 2, that were basically identical studies um, looking at um, using this C. diff antitoxin for uh, preventing recurrent C. diff. And basically what they found is that um, it, it was significantly better um, at preventing recurrences. And um, however, when when used used with actoximab, it wasn't uh, the combined um, actoximab and bezlotoximab was not any better than just bezlotoximab by itself. And so, and then, um, so this is this last um, column over here where the pool data is just combining both modify one and modify two. And so, I have a little video for you guys. Hopefully it'll work. Let's see. And of course, when you want it to work, it doesn't work. If you go back out to where you did before and go up to enable content to try that, now see the little over your far right on the yellow tab. See where it says enable content. Straight up. There you go. Now maybe it'll work. Or not. Okay. There you go. Well, not yes. It's not going away on its own. All right. I was too quick to mess with it, put it there. Well, now you have C. diff and it's not going away on its own. Well, how do I treat it? You basically killed all the healthy bacteria in your body, so now we have to introduce new healthy bacteria. Okay. By uh, performing what's called a, a fecal transplant. Poop? I need a poop transplant? Well, we treat so basically, um, back in 2008, um, Gray's Anatomy just had this miraculous idea to treat someone's C. diff um, while they were in the ER. And so I just put that video just to kind of lead us into this next slide um, about what about fecal micro microbiotal transplant. And so um, it sounds like it, it, it's, it's, it's something that um, I guess when you think about getting this fecal transplant, some sounds like something very modern, very new. But in essence, it's actually been around um, since the fourth century. It's been used in Chinese medicine, and it was called for as a treatment for diarrhea. And they would they would call it the yellow soup, um, as um, so you would prescribe someone else's diarrhea or a stool, make a little soupy concoction, and give it to a person with diarrhea, and their diarrhea would get cured. Um, in the 17th century, it was used as um, transphonation in veterinary, veterinary medicine, meaning that the they would give um, stool from ruminants um, to help cure um, the diarrhea of other of other uh, ruminants. Um, 
and so back in the 17th century um and so kind of very interesting just because it kind of establishes this um relationship between like c diff and uh, the uh, uh, look goes back to the relationship i had mentioned between c diff and our microbiota and how complex it is um and so and just something that i didn't point out here even in human medicine um there, there was an article that mentioned in 1958 this doctor in denver actually transplanted patients with um um someone else's stool in cases that th they had uh, fulminant pseudomembranous colitis so um and what i read was that he noted this immediate and dramatic response um, and so, and actually there's a quote from here, uh, from that um, paper I read saying, this simple yet rational therapeutic method should be given more extensive and clinical evaluation. So this was done in 1958. And so in, in 50 years, if it was something so dramatic, what happened? Why did it get forgotten? And so, um, and that's a good question. Maybe because people were, I guess th there was a, some stigma of get, getting someone else's stool, um, logistics, um, and just there was just a lack of research. Um, and so it wasn't until um, 2013 that there was more uh, research into the matter, and they started out by looking at a randomized trial. Um, and so that was kind of, um, it was an imperfect trial, non not blinded. Um, but they did say that um, patients with um, that had a, a an infusion did have overall uh, better results than just vincomycin, um, and so um, it was just a, it was a very small study. But um, and but it, they had planned for it to be even bigger. But they noticed such a good response with fecal my, my, uh, transplant that they actually stopped it early. Um, so, and I, I put there that it can affect other diseases um, just because what they have seen, there have been some case reports of people with um, like uh, IBD that have been very well controlled for a long time and then they get a fecal transplant and then um, they they all of a sudden have a flare-up of their IBD. Or on the other hand, um, let's just say people with obese people, someone like me, um, with metabolic syndrome, and then they've actually seen the opposite, that like people, um, they, they got a stool transplant from someone thin, and they have actually seen people lose weight. So it's kind of an interesting um, association. There has also been some association with um, rheumatological diseases and so um both so it's something that kind of they're they're looking at more um and the, the role of um the microbiome and its role on diseases and so um as far as future therapies for c diff so these are kind of what, what are listed on the idsa guidelines that we have right now um just potential future um nit nitazoxanide fusidic acid rifaximin tigacycline um so and then on the right i also mentioned some more so just basically um for example um that was something that just very interesting there's not much i didn't find much research on it but um it, the 
they believe that basic tracing itself prevented the the transport of the C diff toxin into the target cells, um, and so they, they believe that it uh, binded to the receptor for the C diff toxin, and therefore um, avoiding all that uh, cytopathic uh, results, cytotoxic effects of the C diff toxin. Um, and so th there's very um, just IDSA mentioned two small trials um, comparing it to vancomycin. So, um, but there's not it's, it's not enough data to support it. Um, rifaximin has also um, been been seen, like in people in cirrhotics, for example, that are on chronic rifaximin. They um, they've noted that these people have lower uh, C diff rates. And um, so I think because of that, they started looking at, well, maybe there's some type of association. Um, and so, or maybe there's some role that in, in, it can help with other therapies. And so what they have seen is that, um, as I mentioned, there's, it's been, um, it had some benefit in reducing rate of recurrence of C. diff. Um, but what they have found is also there's a rate, uh, increasing resistance to rifaximins. So um, people that have been treated with rifaximin, then they develop there's a like a, um, a resistance rate of from like 30 to 50 percent almost. And then um, tigacycline, I know um, there, there's a little bit of more data now on tigacycline, especially in the use of it for severe. Um, C. diff. And actually, there was a, a, a recent uh, study published in June 2020 um, that um, in the European Journal of Microbiology um, that looked at the role of tigacycline. And so it, it analyzed six rep retrospective cohort studies and even did a um, 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 so basically what it found was that even though it was a small number of patients, it suggested that tigacycline should be considered a potential therapeutic uh, option for uh, patients with C. diff and more particularly in those with severe cases. Um, and so um, as far as um, another one I have listed here, um, ridinilazole. Um, so this one demonstrated rapid bactericidal activity against C. diff, um, and it showed that um, it also diminished the production of C. diff toxins. Um, and at least these are results from like a phase two study um, that showed that um, it had a higher sustained clinical response compared to patients with um, re receiving um, vincomycin. So the, the rate of... Um, response was 67% on those with ridinilazole and vancomycin, but we're, from what I could tell, we're only at a phase two trial, so still very small. Um, and then uh, cadazolid was something that was also looked at, but um, it made it to a phase three trial. Um, but unfortunately, um, it was actually stopped short just because um, they did not meet um, the um, the endpoint of being comparable to vancomycin. Um, serotomycin was another one that's uh, currently a phase three trial. 
Um, so far, it seems that it's non-inferior to vancomycin, but it's likely not superior to vancomycin. Um, and and the, the last thing, um, vaccination. So that's actually something very interesting. I just found a study published in February 2021 that was a phase three multi-center observe, um, observer blinded randomized control trial looking at a um, toxoid vaccine for C. diff and um, it enrolled over 9,000 people. Uh, 6,000 were to the, the um, vaccine group and 3,000 received placebo but actually it was halted um, at its kind of uh, in the interim analysis just because it showed a negative efficacy actually so um so they stopped that one and it doesn't seem like we'll be getting a vaccine anymore anytime soon um so just to just to kind of emphasize uh Reinstate. It seems like more most of the future with C. diff lays in uh, fecal transplant. Uh, fecal transplant is something that is overall it, it does have some side effects just because people can develop some nausea and but overall it's well tolerated. There needs to be more research with fecal transplant as far as its association with other diseases, um, potential um, or even treatment of other diseases. Um, it's costly just because every uh, the people um, if you do it, I guess the medical way, scientific way, um, they have to um, make sure you're not receiving any pathogen in the stool sample. Um, but th there there could also be some further research in regards to fecal micro fecal transplant with what bacteria may be best to transplant you. Um, not just alone, um, making sure you're not getting any pathogenic bacteria, if that makes sense. Um, as far as routes of administering fecal transplant, um, it can be done just by taking pill, by um, endoscopic, retention enemas. Um, just what they have found is that um, delivering it to the lower GI seems to be more effective, but at the same time, it increases your risk for for adverse effects, or for and especially in people with IBD, um, they found a um, a higher rate of uh, flare-ups with IBD. Um, so, I think the future of C. diff lies more so with uh, stool transplant and maintaining the. Um, the microbiome integrity of our uh, colonic or of our intestines in order for us to have that um, resistance to, for the disease. And so these are my references. Um, does anyone have any questions for me?